Welcome to this week's Food Safety Superheroes. I'm Brooke Benscooter. Today, my guest is Randy Treadwell. He's the Program Manager for Rapid Response and Emergency Management at Washington State Department of Agriculture. And Randy, I'm so glad you're with us. I've heard some really amazing things about the programs that you run. Oh, thanks for having me, Brooke. I appreciate that. So um, we'll get to some of those things, um, but let's start with why you think food safety is important. I think food safety is pretty broad. I think that, you know, as a common denominator, food is very important to all of us, obviously, as humans. But I think that there's a there's other very important aspects um, that I think intertwine, uh, you know, life experiences, culture and food, uh, cultural interactions, family traditions, religious activities. I mean, all this stuff can be focused around food as, as uh, kind of the nexus um, to those activities. And so I think it's very much ingrained in our culture. I think very, you know, people are very passionate about food. And I think as a result of that, you know, on our end as regulators for food and feed safety, um, I think we have to be equally passionate about making sure that it's safe for people. So you've been in the business a while. How has food safety and keeping the consumer informed changed? That's a really good question. I think um, from a food safety regulatory perspective, um, obviously we're always trying to move more and more towards the prevention side versus the reaction side. Um, and I think, uh, you know, as we go on, I've been, I've been in this position for about 10 years and um, we've seen leaps and bounds when it comes to improvements in technology, uh, traceback efforts, um, you know, around blockchain, um, tracking of, of food products as they go throughout processing and distribution and then, um, you know, ultimately consumption. So I think it's changed in a way in that uh, tracking and all of that has gotten a lot quicker, a lot more efficient, a lot more robust. But I think at the same time, um, from the information side and the information sharing around that and working with consumers, that has also gotten much quicker, as we all know, you know, from a, uh, from a social media standpoint, um, uh, reports of, of foodborne illness uh, disseminate through, you know, platforms such as Facebook and, and uh, you know, I got poisoned and all of that uh, uh, very much quicker than sometimes our traditional uh, detection methods uh, can, can capture. So I think uh, with increases in technology from both the production side of food and from the response side of related to consumer um, information and uh, and illness and outbreak reporting, all of that has gotten much quicker. And I think it's our task to try to keep up with that as regulators. I found it interesting. Um, just in the past probably week, I saw an advertisement for IBM. And they were talking about how they support blockchain um, procedure for food. And, mm -hmm. and it's a commercial for consumers. And, and I just wonder how long it will be before consumers really understand what goes on on the backside. That's a, a very interesting statement. Yeah, and I think that that, uh, not only from the consumer side, but I think, in my opinion, I have a lot of learning to still do from the blockchain and, uh, uh, you know, the blockchain is, uh, component to, to trace backs when it, as it relates to 
foodborne illness outbreaks and product trace back. Um, yeah, it's going to be curious to see how it goes. There's a lot of moving parts to that. Um, I think a lot of the uh, workings of, of not just blockchain, but kind of that cloud-based approach to traceability is, uh, can be a little bit um, different and nebulous for um, the common consumer, the common regulator. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning more about it as it becomes more and more prevalent, I think, in, uh, in the food production arena. So you talked a little bit about, um, you know, the fact that social media, for example, really allows people to talk and about, you know, what their experience with the food um, that they eat is. But does that also allow us to be more proactive and keep people from maybe consuming things that they shouldn't or... Um, it could be, it's been a good thing as well. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that using the social media platforms to um, um, not only get food safety information out uh, to the consumer in a timely manner, but, but it can also be very appropriate, I, I guess, from a seasonal perspective, you, I, I guess you could say, where, um, you know, there's a lot of great infographics coming out of of partner agencies, um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, uh, to name one, that uh, that you know you can definitely just uh, shoot out on your on your social media, whether it be your personal account or your agency account or your professional association account, to remind folks about you know, for example, proper cooking temperatures of whole turkeys uh, around Thanksgiving time, or um, you know, leftover uh, time frames, how long you can keep leftovers around. Uh, um, you know, sporting events like the Super Bowl or something like that. So I think, yeah, um, there's definitely a lot of opportunity to do some very time-targeted um, uh, education opportunities um, using social media, even if it is uh, faster and, uh, and uh, harder to track sometimes. So in a way, you've answered my question about why it's important to meet consumers where they are because no longer are they looking at bulletin boards in the grocery store or necessarily um, watching television all the time. Um, Absolutely. And I think one, uh, I think one consideration we always have to keep in mind though, too, is the variability in that, um, uh, you know, obviously a lot of people are, are involved with social media and, uh, and, you know, the more, uh, up-to-date media um, conduits, but at the same time, there are folks who um, are not, and I think that right. we have to make sure and, and keep that balance there uh, to make sure that we get the, the, the most correct information in the most timely manner out to the widest breadth of people who might be, um, you know, consuming these, these, these products of interest. So that could, that really is a challenge as well to make sure you're reaching everyone. Absolutely. Yeah, you do the best you can, for sure. So as you look at the work that you've done in food safety, what's one program or outreach that you're most proud of? <laughs> I appreciate you asking that. I, uh, I've had the opportunity within Department of Agriculture to do a, a, a fair uh, amount of different projects over the years. And I'd say one thing I'm most proud of is um, uh, surrounding the, the food and feed rapid response team. 
Um, we've had what we call the RRT for um, close to 10 years now, and we've been very lucky to have uh, cooperative agreement funding through FDA to not only initially develop uh, that team, but uh, nurture it and maintain it and keep it kind of on a, on a continual improvement cycle, um, like I said, since 2009. So I think uh, one of the, what I feel are, one of the things I'm most proud of relates to that team is the network of food and feed public health professionals that we've been able to build uh, mm -hmm. through that team and around that team to um, protect the public health, particularly in Washington, but also in our in our FDA division uh, region. Um, it, you know, a lot of the equipment uh, comes along with that grant funding supplies, things that uh, physically allow you to respond to a food or feedborne um, incident or emergency. Uh, but I think more of the qualitative side is what I really value in that the network building and the culture shift that we've been able to experience over the years to where it's just become um, second nature, I guess, to, to work with each other, to communicate with each other um, in the most efficient way possible to um, respond to, to these types of outbreaks or other sort of emergencies. So um, in a nutshell, long story short, I think it has to do with that culture change and that, that culture adoption of really working together in as, as much as we can integrated um, food and feed safety system to, to help the public health. So what I hear you saying is that you've created not just a new paradigm, but you've also created a team of people who are on the rapid response team. Um, and, and so you're ready, you hope you don't have to use it, but if you do, you've already created those relationships. Exactly. Yes. It's not one of those, uh, situations to where when you have an emergency on, on Christmas Eve or, uh, notification comes through on a weekend at 1130 at night that you have to start, uh, you know, figuring out who you need to contact at that point. You already have those connections there. Um, they they know you, you know them, and uh, you've talked to, talked to, you know, in non-emergency situations, uh, and it just may, helps the process go a lot smoother. Um, but one thing I do want to mention, though, is that this has definitely been a group effort over the years, and um, even though uh, Department of Agriculture has been kind of the coordinating body as as the grant uh, receiving agency, it's definitely been an all all group effort, including FDA, our Department of Health, our local jurisdictions, um, USDA. Uh, all of those uh, people are very passionate about what they do and uh, um, are very uh, interested in, in making sure that the communication lines remain open in order for us to protect the public health. So it's very very much been a group effort, um, and. Uh, uh, we look forward to continuing to improve that team um, as we go. So. so what would you tell AFTO members about what you just talked about that maybe they should steal or learn from? Um, you know, there's no such thing evidently as a new idea always. But, but what, what could they take away even though they're not in Washington State? or they, their program may not be an RRT program. Mm -hmm. Well, we talked a little bit about culture and culture change. And um, one thing I've, I've um, learned over these years is that um, culture change doesn't 
doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> and, I, and that might not be a surprise to some people, but um, you, you know, you try to try to have a lot of uh, action, a lot of movement forward. And sometimes, particularly on the cultural standpoint, if it's something that quote unquote has always been done this way, sometimes old habits can die hard. And, and sometimes that culture change, like I said, doesn't happen as quickly as, as uh, one might hope. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, keep at it and make sure that you get uh, support and champions with um, what you're trying to accomplish and, uh, and and keep pushing forward on that because, again, it's not going to happen overnight, uh, but uh, you can keep making small baby steps forward and eventually that culture uh, will adopt um, those changes and make and and through that adoption, I think are going to be a lot more sustainable than than something that you're trying to uh, push through overnight. And um, it, it might not be as sustainable or successful that way. Um, the other point to that, I think, is a persistence component. Where um, you know, theoretically, looking down the line, you've you've you and your agency and your partners have made uh, a culture shift and a culture change, and things are working well. And I think that. Um, one thing you always have to kind of keep in the back of your mind is that um, that can shift back very quickly. <laughs> and uh, if there's not constant care and feeding to that to that culture and to that, that change, sometimes it can revert back and uh, to, to previous ways of doing, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the not so better. Um, but uh, in order to keep on moving forward and um, making sure that you're, you're uh, having the culture change that you want to have, and uh, are trying to have within your agency or your group um, that constant vigilance on making sure that it moves forward, I think, is key. So I'm going to shift for just a second because um, I've been told that you have found a way to really extend your reach personally, um, almost like cloning yourself in a sense, um, I, Steve, Steve shared a story with me and has told me that you've had some pretty amazing success personally with using technology. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I was wondering where that question was going in the beginning, but now I understand. <laughs> so, yes, we have a, a very... Um, I guess you'd say relatively novel approach um, to cloning yourself, so to speak, uh, to making sure that we get maximum uh, coverage uh, within the state of Washington Department of Agriculture uh, around emergency management and response. And so just a little bit of background information. Um, uh, our, our headquarters is based in Olympia, Washington, which is just uh, south of uh, Seattle and Tacoma on the coast. I'm uh, physically based in Spokane, Washington, which borders on the Idaho border in eastern Washington. So um, uh, there's a, quite a bit of geographical distance between myself and our headquarters, um, which sometimes can um, you know, cause some logistical challenges related to emergency planning, um, exercises, um, just even the day-to-day -day meetings of, of uh, regulatory business. So um, about three, well, I guess it's been four or five years ago now, um, we had the idea. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna give full credit. My wife had the idea <laughs> because I was traveling so much back and forth on each side of the state. Um, that wouldn't it be funny if we were able to uh, clone you and have a robot of sorts to where you could wheel the robot around over in the in the Olympia office for for meetings that um, you know didn't necessarily require face to face contact. Um, but still needed your, your, uh, more of a physical presence than, than on a teleconference line. 
So we did some research, and uh, there's actually um, a few uh, vendors out there that do offer a very um, useful, very user-friendly um, robot. I guess you'd say they call it uh, virtual presence or telepresence machines um, that allow you to uh, log on to the cloud, uh, log into your robot, and uh, wheel this, this virtual presence device around a remote location using the cloud and your, your laptop or um, iPad or whatever uh, mobile phone device um, as, as kind of the video gaming device. It allows you to move around, um, you control it, um, it allows you to talk through a video conference device mounted to an iPad onto the device. So um, long story short, we use that. Um, and it's been, it, it was definitely a, a very quick return on investment when you consider travel and per diem costs. Um, we had to be careful, you know, from a state regulatory agency about which funds we used for that. You just have to be cognizant about, you know, grant funding versus state funding, et cetera. Um, but we were able to demonstrate that we had a, a quick return on investment and not just in those, those travel-related costs of me going back and forth. Um, one just kind of quick uh, emergency response related and food related component to that. Um, I was uh, had a, a couple years ago um, as part of the RRT, we mentor other states as part of the formal mentoring process um, through through the cooperative agreement. And uh, we had a conflict to, to where I was going to be an incident command training um, on the other side of the state out of my home office um, for an entire week that that conflicted with one of our mentor meetings down in New Mexico. <clears throat> um, so in order to try to uh, extend our, our uh, mentoring ability <laughs> during that training, we ended up sending the, uh, the robot and, and mailing him down to New Mexico where they uncreated um, what we affectionately call the Randroid. Uncreated the Randroid and uh, got him all ready to go. And because of the time difference, I was able to uh, sit in my hotel room prior to my training and, uh, and present about um, our, our RRT mentorship with New Mexico to their RRT team down in Albuquerque at the time um, through the Randroid. Then I was able to, once that was done, uh, log off and then uh, go back to business as usual and attend uh, my training the following hour up here in Washington. So it really did allow me to be in two places um, at once and really allowed us to expand our capacity to not only you know, uh, respond to meetings and things like that, but interact with a whole different group of people uh, you know, a thousand miles away. So it was a really neat uh, opportunity to do that. And I applaud you for thinking outside the box. To I mean, really, that's what you've done is to extend your own expertise and subject matter expertise um, and have it be available in a meaningful way. Well, and I was very much grateful for that opportunity uh, to, to, to look into this as an, even an option. And um, I think one thing that's came out of it, too, in, in, in my opinion, um, you know, this particular device, you can, um, anybody who has the login information can log into it. So staff who uh, might not necessarily be in headquarters but are remote, um, but also have a lot to offer as far as, uh, you know, expertise in a related field that might not be in the home office. I, I would, I think it really helps close that gap um, of making sure that, that you can utilize um, staff all over the, the state, all over the nation, all over the world, um, 
based on their on their abilities and their expertise versus their physical location. So I would if if people are interested in in looking more into that and having that as an option, this might be a, a, a cost effective option for them. Well thanks for sharing that, Randy. I just I just think it's fascinating and and it's really a step up from just being on Skype or teleconferencing because of that presence, I think. It sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see it. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely uh, uh, very interesting, and you get forgotten a lot less uh, when there's a an iPad screen with your face, you know, staring at them in the conference room. <laughs> I'll bet that's true. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the future. Um, if you had a crystal ball, what would you say about the future of food safety? Even though it sounds to me like you've kind of harness some of the future already, but what, what would you say about what the future holds? Well, I think it kind of goes back to one of our previous questions about technology. And obviously, you know, we're in a, a new area of rapidly expanding technology. We already mentioned blockchain. Um, you know, that's from the traceability standpoint of things, but even just from the production side of, of food and feed, things are going very quickly. There's always new ideas coming down the line on how to make things faster, make things um, more efficient, um, and, and, you know, make things safer at the same time. Um, I think to that, um, one thing that we always need to consider, I believe, as, as regulatory folks um, and as emergency managers, is that there's still, I feel, going to be the importance of a, a, a human component to that namely uh, things around epidemiology um, and outbreak response and, and linking or associating, um, you know, the clusters of illnesses, whether it be within the state or nationally or worldwide, to particular uh, exposures being food products or uh, feed product cross-contamination with humans or zoonotic type diseases. Um, so I think there's always, I hope that there's going to be that uh, along with technology, that uh, that hand-in-hand -hand collaboration with the human side as well. And I think from, you know, not only the outbreak response, but from the education side, I think that there's always going to be the need for that human touch when it comes to education um, out in the field, out with our processors, out with consumers to where, um, you know, we can really try to tie in the technology that we have today the differences that we've had, you know, uh, come out of technology today versus in the past and articulating that through education in the field um, uh, and, and making sure that um, the, the technology, oh, I'm trying to say here, Brooke, <laughs> the okay. technology is uh, still, um, it's helping us making sure that we're, we're effectively educating for, um, you know, the current situation and, uh, and the current uh, processes that we have in place to make sure that public health is protected. Would it be fair to say that technology is a tool rather than a replacement for the human aspect? That's a perfect way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> because, yes. Because yes. There's, there's always a great fear of that, that, that people will see it almost, especially those you serve, would see it as an easy way out. And you want to keep that that uh, relationship going. Absolutely, yes. And uh, you know, there's always there's 
going back to the epidemiological side of things and, and associating products with illnesses and things like that, you know, there's the, the argument uh, currently around uh, the capabilities of artificial intelligence and computers being able to, um, you know, use data that they have to, 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 to make those associations and those linkages. And um, I think that's great. I think that's, like you said, another tool. Um, but I think a lot of that human touch um, can't necessarily, at least at this point in time, be, uh, be uh, the, the importance of that can't be underscored enough, I think, especially when we're dealing with a network of folks that we put together all over the nation to make sure that we're talking and communicating effectively, not only with each other to protect public health, but also um, you know, make sure that the, the consumers are, are well informed. Yes. So we talked about your crystal ball and we talked about you cloning <laughs> and we talked about the program that um, the RRT program that that um, your team and have has put together. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that you wished I had? No, I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat and, and uh, I, I think one thing that seems like a common trend throughout our discussion is is the integration standpoint. And I think that I feel, in my personal opinion, we're, we're really moving towards that. I, you know, sometimes it's baby steps, sometimes it's, it's really big steps, but um, I think it's, it's very important that we all as regulators, as, uh, as the informed consumer public, um, that we're moving towards um, an integrated food and feed safety system. And, I, and, and by that, I mean, you know, integrating technology and the human factor that we talked about, integrating um, all agencies of government and regulatory bodies uh, together to share information to quickly respond, um, not only from an outbreak and response side of things, uh, but from a policy standpoint. So, you know, integrating as much as we can to make sure that we are um, being good stewards of the, of the public funds and, uh, and protecting the public health. As, as quickly um, and as efficiently and as robustly as we as we can. Very well said. I appreciate it, Randy. Thanks so much for your time today. And um, I hope that we can talk more in the future about other successes in um, Washington State. And um, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for the opportunity, Brooke. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks, Randy.